Welcome to the Informed Discussions podcast, where we discuss the latest economic, demographic, and public policy research that is helping Utah prosper. I'm Nick Theriot, Communications Director at the Gardner Institute. Today we'll be discussing all things demographics with Director of Demographic Research Mallory Bateman and Senior Demographer Emily Harris. So let's get started. So Utah's multiracial or two or more races resident population added the most residents and was the fastest growing racial or ethnic group, regardless of Hispanic or Latino origin between the years 2010 and 2020. According to the recent report you authored, talk about the significance of this. How has the last decade differed from prior years and what uh, what should people know about those 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 figures? Yeah. So if you look at um Previous decades, especially kind of 1990 forward, you had around 2% of the population was identifying as multiracial. Um, And if you look at this decade, uh, it's around 10% nationally and 8% um, in Utah. So that's a big jump percentage-wise. That's around 200,000 new residents between 2010 and 2020 in Utah. And so part of this is actually a a data point. So it's the Census Bureau was a little more inclusive in how they were coding people's responses. Um, So that's important to note. Um, But then also, you know, we've had a lot more people moving into the state and, you know, those people are coming with different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, And so that's been part of that diversification. And then Additionally, younger Utahns are more likely to identify as multiracial. So as those kids grow up and then if they get to stay, um, maybe they want to, you know, continue their families here. That that trend's just going to continue into the future. Talk a little bit about you mentioned the census and sort of a reorganization, so to speak, on their part. So does that mean that these that these you know Utahns were already here and we're simply reclassifying them or are they? Are there more of them coming here? Uh, is this a, just a definition change on the part of the federal government, or, or uh, are they? Is it a little bit of both? What, what uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So, if you there's a lot of great blogs on the Census Bureau website about this for those that are really interested. Um, but basically, they counted more of the ways people identified. So, if you remember, um, look back fondly to April 2020 when you filled out your census form and scrubbing my cereal boxes. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was With the Clorox only thing going and, on. So yeah, people were no, really fond focused. memories in April 2020. Exactly. Um, so uh, there were there was an option and a recommendation for people to write down kind of their ancestry and origin, and they tried to make more room for people to identify because there are six boxes basically that you can choose for race and ethnicity on census bureau surveys and the census and that doesn't fit everybody so um you know this 2020 round they they broadened the number of characters they could count um, in those boxes and if you check certain things um, everything was counted so in the past it was a little more restrictive i think just you know part of it is like the ability to process this easily. I think there have been some technological improvements that helped. Um, So part of it is that kind of really deep cut nerd data processing. But then I do think we've had more people moving to the state that would identify in this way. Got it. So a little bit of both, both improvements on the federal government census side, as well as people coming here. So where in the state is the growth having the most impact? Where are they coming? Where are they living? 
what are you seeing? So largely, it's the Wasatch Front. Um, it's it's Weber County, Davis County, Salt Lake County have the largest shares of multiracial residents. And then also Grand County was pretty high. Um, and one thing that, that might be impacting it is areas with higher um, Hispanic or Latino, larger Hispanic or Latino populations, because it's more likely that Hispanic or Latino residents also are multiracial. So, you know, these, these areas do have larger um, Hispanic or Latino populations. And, um, you know, if you think about other aspects of at least, you know, Weber, Utah, and Salt Lake counties, you have a lot of employment opportunities. You have a lot of educational opportunities. There's a lot of things that bring everybody here. Um, so it kind of makes sense. We would have larger shares of multiracial population as well. Do these populations in terms of where they are, you know, we talked a little bit about where they're where they're living, where they're at here in the state, where are they coming from? Do the trends in this sort of subset of of the overall population growth, are are they are they coming from, I know we've tracked in the past net in migration, where they're coming from in terms of states, uh, a lot coming from California, of course. Is there any way to kind of break that down or disseminate it even further to see where this multiracial population is coming from? Or are you, are the, do the trends follow pretty similarly, more or less, where people are coming from in general, regardless of how they identify? Or what do you... Is there any way to kind of drill down to that? In the past, we have seen, um, I'm trying to remember the report. I feel like the shares of people um, identifying outside of non-Hispanic white that move here are a little bit higher than those who are just here anyway. Um, but this is a good research question that we can add to our list <laughs> to investigate further in the future. Absolutely. So do we have a more accurate sense of where the state is headed in terms of population growth because of this research. Are we seeing shifts in our projections or your great projections worked uh, in terms of the state's multiracial population growth? Are we, because uh, we've done these population projections several times over the past several years now, are the models being adjusted or or what uh, what's the impact you're seeing as a result of this research on overall growth in the state? So, Technical answer, um, we're looking at it. <laughs> we're trying to, to um, Mike Stay Hollings' tuned. house. Yeah, Mike Hollings' house right now is actually digging into this data, and he's really excited about how we might be able to model it. Um, we, kind of, we model race and ethnicity projections separately from the total population um, because it's a little bit trickier to figure that out. There's a lot of additional factors that aren't necessarily just economic or um, you know demographic levers there. So stay tuned. Um, but then kind of just in a broad perspective, if more young Utahns are identifying as multiracial, if they stay, if they're able to keep living here and want to, you know, raise their families here or their households, whatever, whatever their future might entail, um, then that that share is going to grow. And I think as long as we're a place that's attractive for people to move to, if people feel comfortable moving here and, and they want to stay here, then um, you know, we kind of think this trend will continue into the future. So just to sum up, what, in your view, are the major points that decision makers, policy leaders in this state, in Utah, should take away from this research? What are kind of the big uh, bottom line uh, lines or, or pitches you would make to these folks uh, in terms of planning for the future in Utah? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously, one, I think, we will continue to see our population diversify racially and ethnically. So just remembering there are a lot of people living in Utah now um, with a lot of different experiences. Um, 
also that those those six categories I mentioned, those boxes people can check to when they self-identify what their race or ethnicity is, those are a good starting point, but there's a lot of diversity within all of those different categories. And I think this report kind of highlights, you know, there's 57 different ways people can combine these. So it's a lot of different populations, a lot of different experiences. And then, um, you know, another thing with that is those categories can sometimes make populations look smaller. Like if you look at our American Indian population, just those who check the one box, it doubles when you consider people who include it as part of their multiracial ethnicity. So, or race, excuse me. So, you know, we need to just be a little bit more thoughtful maybe in how we're looking at race and ethnicity when we are making decisions. And um, it's not going to be a trend that goes away anytime soon. There you go. Demographics are de is destiny. Yeah. Or demography is demography is destiny. What was what was demography the line? is destiny? I think is the one yeah, that I. Yeah, demography found. is destiny. Yeah, I like that. But one. he's very old in French, so it could have been <laughs> paraphrased. Well, in that case, we'll strike it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, Mallory. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. So shifting gears now to fertility rates in Utah. Utah's declining fertility rate made state headlines in 2016 when it no longer ranked highest in the country. Since then, the state's total fertility rate of 1.92 births per woman has declined nationally from highest to fourth highest, with rates in South Dakota, Nebraska, and North Dakota exceeding Utah's. So break this down for us. What is the significance of this shift and what's causing it? And what uh, what are you seeing in the research that, you're, that you've been conducting in this latest report? Yeah, I mean, this has caught a lot of people off guard. Um, even when I talked to partners in other states who do similar demographic work, um, everyone knows that Utah has the highest fertility rate, like everybody knows that, um, because Utah's had the highest fertility rate for so long, and really for as long as anyone can remember. Um, but, you know, honestly, Utah's fertility rate has been declining for the last 60 to 70 years, slowly, but it's been declining. Um, but what's really significant about this ranking change and really over the last 10 years is that Utah's fertility rate is just declining much faster than most other states and especially faster than the three states you just mentioned. So South Dakota, Nebraska, and North Dakota who are now ahead of Utah in the rankings. Um, and so we've talked about these three, three states in Utah a lot. And so the focus of this report and this research was to kind of figure out where does Utah actually fit within the national context? Because comparing Utah to South Dakota or North Dakota isn't really a meaningful comparison. Um, but if we can put Utah in even the regional context, so for the Intermountain West, it just provides a little bit more um, information that is actually helpful and helps us understand what's really going on with fertility across the board. So We've talked a little bit about the national context, but break that down a little bit more for us. How do Utah's trends compare to the national trends? We've talked about these other states specifically, but overall as a nation, uh, what are we seeing in these trends uh, overall nationwide? Yeah, so I mean, if we're looking at you know the United States fertility rate, um, the U.S. has declined, their fertility rates declined by about 15% over the last 10 years. And Utah, in comparison, has declined by 22%. And that's the seventh highest or the seventh fastest decline in the nation. So if we think about it that way, Utah's declining fertility 
is really an exception compared to a lot of other places. But again, you know, if we look at it regionally, Utah's fertility decline is really mostly part of the rule. The Intermountain West and the Pacific divisions have both experienced 20% declines in total fertility rate at a regional level. Um, they're declining really rapidly. And along with that, most of the states within these areas are also declining really fast. And so Utah, in that context, is just kind of like in the middle of the pack in how fast it's declining. Okay. I'm going to switch these two questions because it makes more sense to go <laughs> the yeah. broader time. Yeah. So, um, going even broader than the United States, what are we seeing in terms of international fertility rates around the world? There have been notable stories in the past about fertility rates in countries like Japan, China, Europe as a whole, uh, and elsewhere, and how it comes to uh, their long-term, how it comes to impact, rather, their long-term planning as countries. What can you tell us uh, in this kind of broader context? Yeah. So, you know, even before, I mean, the U.S. rate has been declining for a long time now, um, but really, we've started to see this conversation of fertility rates declining in what we consider and what we call developed countries. A lot of times that means, you know, like Western European countries or places like Japan and China. And really, for the last 15 or 20 years, um, we've seen their fertility rates really decline. Um, but recently, probably over the last 10 years, we've started to notice that fertility rates in these countries are actually starting to stabilize. And even some of them are starting to see very slight increases in their fertility rates. And that's really interesting. So what we're starting to see is that as fertility is stabilizing in these countries that once saw very sharp drops that were of major concerns to a lot of the economies of these countries, we're seeing fertility kind of settle in between about 1.4 and 1.7. Um, I mean, and there are a few exceptions to that, but that's generally where we're starting to see countries um, settle. And, you know, we talk about 2.1 as replacement for fertility rates, about two, right? If every woman had two children, that would replace um, the population in theory. And so, you know, the having a number below two makes people really nervous. And, you know, a lot of these countries have implemented really an assortment of what we call pronatal policies, which try to encourage citizens to have children um, and also to also support families, existing families. Um, so, you know, we've had countries that try to have one-time payments per child, uh, monthly payments for children, which will ring familiar to a lot of um, people here in the U.S. after we had kind of that uh, child tax credit and monthly payments earlier in the pandemic, universal or free child care, um, paid parental leave, and then also just uh, having governmental job protections for women, for both men and women in the postpartum period. Um, and so, again, countries have been doing a lot of different things to try to impact fertility rates. But really, the effectiveness of these policies, while it's been researched, we don't really see huge fertility gains being made um, by these policies. Though, if we think about the general trend of um, stalling fertility declines that we're seeing, you know, arguably, we could consider that a byproduct of some of these policy and cultural shifts around supporting families um, and you know, cultural shifts 
And kind of one last thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, additionally, a lot of these countries, since they haven't seen huge fertility gains from some of these policies, they've really started to change their immigration policies to help offset the worker shortages that they're attributing to declining fertility. So there's a lot of options and there are a lot of things that countries are doing um, to, like I said, try to increase fertility or at least support existing families the way it stands now. I think that's a good segue of sorts into what we want to talk about next, and that's the economic impact of fertility in a, in a general sense. In general, what can be seen, whether it's these policies you've mentioned, whether it's a broad uh, in the broad economic sense, uh, what do we see as the impacts of declining fertility rates or stabilizing fertility rates uh, to go the other way? How are economic growth and this demographic fertility uh, uh question or, or, or trends intertwined? How do they connect to each other? And, and what should people be aware of in terms of the economic impact of these, of these trends in fertility rates? Yeah, so I, the main thing that gets brought up, especially by economists um, and policymakers and legislators, um, is the labor force, right? So our current system is set up with the assumption that our population will just continue to grow at a similar rate and in very sim similar ways indefinitely. And I mean, Nick, you know, even just like looking at our projections and how we communicate them, there's a lot of um, asterisks that go along with a statement like that, right? Sure. We know that things change, things happen, and um, those assumptions, they're just assumptions and they may change. And so really people are concerned, I feel like, about declining fertility and, um, how these assumptions are changing. So not only are we having less children, but the other thing that people don't often talk about as much is that we're also living longer. And so we're seeing these two dynamics of having lower fertility and an older population slowly play out. What that's doing is that's causing our population age structure to shift. So if we don't have these core assumptions continue to play out, which is consistently high fertility rates and a stable life expectancy, our population starts to have more and more older people than before, but we don't have the same uh, proportion of young people. We start to have a smaller share of young people. And that means that a larger share of the population are not in the workforce. And if you have an older population, they require different resources than a younger one. Right. So our system, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, so to, I mean, you would probably, to, to kind of rephrase it, from a public policy standpoint and these different policies or programs that are being put in place, the conversation may shift based on these fertility rates, whether they're stabilizing or in decline or increasing the shift in policy discussions may go from things like, you know, pre-K to, to childcare to more uh, specifically getting into more care for the elderly. You mentioned an aging population that, uh, that will require more resources. Is that part of the discussion that you're seeing then to, to kind of put it another way? I think people have a conversation about the aging population, uh, but they don't, they don't think about it in terms of fertility because if you think about fertility and then getting to age 65, that's a 70 year time horizon, right? right? But I think what we're seeing now is we've had declining fertility rates for a long time. And now we're starting to see the shifts of that. 
And because our system is set up to subsidize the older population's needs with the younger population's income and effort, we're starting to see that population imbalance play out. And that strains our current system as more and more of the population piles into the older ages. So it's partially about the aging population, but most people tend to focus on the impact of having less of the population in the labor force. Got it. So that's a good segue into my final question here. Bringing it back to Utah, I posed this question to Mallory, now I pose it to you. What are the key takeaways in your view that decision makers, policy leaders should be aware of for our long-term planning as a state based on what we're seeing in these trends in fertility and in both in the short-term, long-term, whatever we see that may be available to start planning for the future? Yeah, well, I think there's, to me, there's two main things. So first, I think, you know, specifically when we talk about declining fertility rates and the concern for that, I think there needs to be a conversation around and reckoning with the fact that a lot of Utah's current issues are very interconnected. So we can't really address something like declining fertility rates without also recognizing that things like lack of affordable housing, air quality concerns, childcare, and honestly, traditional work cultures and company policies can make it really hard to have or even want to have children. I also think it's really important to understand that given what we're seeing in other countries, there may just be a fertility, what I consider equilibrium that we are reaching. You know, women are more educated, they have higher incomes, and they're prioritizing labor force participation. So if that means, you know, that families are getting smaller by choice as values and priorities shift, then you know, that's just how it's going to be regardless of the incentives to have more kids. But ultimately, I really think it's important that people are able to make the family choices they want. So if there are issues that are causing people to have less children, then I think that's what needs to be addressed, really supporting people in the decisions that they want to make when it comes to family planning. Well, Emily, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Nick. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to Mallory and Emily for joining us and all the great work you're doing. We hope you learned something that can help inform and shed light. And as always, thanks for listening to the Informed Discussions podcast from the University of Utah's Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute at the David Eccles School of Business. 